Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, hello, everyone. Last uh, service, I made a joke about how our whiteboard is uh, not doing so well. Uh, At our volunteer Christmas party, right before we came to the party, a homeless guy smashed it. So that was interesting. Um, So if you're wondering what my size is for Christmas, it's an extra large whiteboard. So, um, well, today is Whiteboard Sunday, and I'm very excited. Uh, If you have your Bibles, Isaiah is where we're going to be, kind of in the middle of your Bible, Old Testament. We've spent... Last few weeks in the season of Advent, the first is our church uh, of the three years we've been gathering. This is kind of exciting. The first week and second week, peace and hope. And uh, each time we talk about uh, one of those, those components and attributes of what we experience through Jesus coming uh, to earth is through him um, fulfilling a role that he is called to, several different things. So uh, the first two weeks we talked about how he is our great high priest talked a little bit about what that means, what that looks like in light of making us clean before God through sacrifice. Uh, We also talked about him being this great prophet who fulfilled these prophecies and brought forth and fulfilled everything that the prophets had said in the Old Testament. And today that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in a prophet, Isaiah, and we're going to talk about two things today. One of you already probably saw. We're going to talk about joy uh, and what that means and what a true biblical definition of joy is. And then the second thing is in light of that, is Jesus as our king. So today is we're focusing on his role as our great king. And so what I want to do is I'm going to split up both. We're going to talk about what it means to be a king for a while, and then I'm going to bring in joy, and then we're going to wrap it all up, and hopefully we'll all be joyful by the end of this. Uh, So if you can bear with me a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about some history. Um, So kings. Most of us today, we're not really that verse with kings. We kind of make fun of the queen of England because we're like, it's not even really a real thing, like whatever, right? We don't really get it, but... A lot of countries for hundreds of years, in fact, 1,000 to 2,000 years ago, almost you know, every large group community had a king or some sort of like hereditary power where you just translated your power to that person to that person, and it was a falling lineage. Uh, and then, of course, you have movies we watch where that doesn't happen because someone tries to kill the king, and it's sort of this like battle right, of like whoever is still left standing is the king, right? Uh, but today, it's, it's hard for us to really think about what it would be like then, but what we're going to see in Isaiah and the context that the, the Jewish people find themselves in is that God is purposefully making the Israelite people the not-cool kid at the lunch table. Uh, and, you know, um, you can remember back to your school days, uh, probably like late middle school, early high school, where you were really consumed with style, like what people were doing and wearing and what they were saying, what shows they were watching, um, and, you know, I can remember that, like, cargo shorts were our thing, you know? In eighth grade, if you weren't wearing cargo shorts, you were a noob, right? And to be honest, I never filled anything with all those pockets. Like, not once. Never once was I like, man, I'm using all these pockets in my cargo shorts. But I needed to have them because everyone else had them, right? And then it was skinny jeans, and it was joggers, and now it's, like, wide leg jeans or whatever, right? Which I can never pull off because I'm too skinny. So, but they have these fads, right? And you have to ask yourself... Um, in, in the complexity of your own security, do I want to partake in that for the sake of like either being liked or being cool or feeling known or whatever, or do I want to stay in my own course? Because most people in fads, they wouldn't intrinsically choose that for themselves if they had no culture around them. 
Uh, meaning, you know, some of the fads that we have, like dudes getting perms, right, like, like high school guys getting perms, if they didn't have other guys doing that, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't pay all the money. They wouldn't deal with the maintenance, right? It wouldn't make any sense. But we do it because other people are doing it. So in that moment, we have to decide, do I want to do that, like everyone else, or do I want to stay in, you know, wherever I'm at in my own area and have to deal with potentially the feelings of insecurity, that I'm not like them, or I'm different, or I don't fit in, or I have to see things differently. And all of us have experienced that, and even as adults now experience that in different ways, whether it's the, the clothes your kids wear, or the car that you drive, or the hobbies that you do, or whatever, right? You can name it, it's here, it's even in the church. And these, the Jewish people, when they followed Yahweh, the one true God, in the Old Testament, and he gives them these laws, he's saying, you're going to be the not cool kid at the table, but if you follow these laws, you will be the most loving, kind, compassionate, light-driven person at this table. And that will make everyone else not care about the clothing they're wearing, but the heart of who you are as a people. And so what, G and so what God did through the, the idea of kings is he created something called a judge. So if you read in the Old Testament, you read the stories of the Israelites being led out of Egypt. Eventually, they need a, a sort of ruler or government or some sort of system to control the people. There's a lot of people. And so they create what's called judges. The book of judges is stories of all the judges. However, when we think judge today, we think like gavel, robe, sitting in a chair. A judge was the exact opposite at this time. It would have been basically a military leader, um, typically racking up some carnage, right? Like a grid military fighter making military tactics decisions for a season of time. So, um, you know, they're like the Supreme Court, you know, it's basically like a life position if you don't screw it up too bad, right? You could be there forever. Kings, you basically are there until you're killed, right? There's no like retirement as a king. But in Judges, it was a season of time for a specific context, whether a war or some sort of like political sort of issue, and God would appoint them. And so that's how they'd operate in the entire book of Judges, which the book of Judges is the most heavy, violent book in the entire Bible, uh, because the, God is leading these people into the promised land, and every other country and nation around them is like, we want that land too. And so they're all, there's just tons of carnage. It's wild. Um, but there are three reasons why the judges were, was the uncool kids at the table. Okay, the first reason is that God appointed the judges, not man. And so what that means is that they had no control. There's no political power. There's no manipulation of people. There's no tribalism that was like, hey, we want our guy. There's none of that. You couldn't do it. God chose the, the judge, and everybody had to respect that. And so what that did was that placed the power not on specific people or manipulation or oppression, but on God himself. Um, and that was really hard because that did not, some people didn't like that person or whatever, right? They had the political agenda. The second piece is that judges were not permanent like kings. When you were a king, the fact that you had a permanency and your lineage had a permanency allowed you to think differently about your rule and the decisions that you could make and the things that you could do. And for some reason, even common people liked the idea of that. Because let's be honest, we love superheroes, we love an idol, we love someone that we can look up to or feel good about or like or, or want to emulate, or whatever it may be. We're human, that's kind of part of who we are. And so a king was that physical presence that you would feel that for. The third thing, and that's probably the most substantial issue, is that everyone around them at the lunch table were king, like had kings. That was just what you did. When you were a certain level of a nation or a, um, a faction at that point, you would have a king or a queen, and you'd have, that was the way you thought about it. Now, even if you did, um, I did a, a brief Wikipedia dive, uh, on, I typed in 11th century, 11th century BC history, and this is the list of things that are recorded in the 11th century. If you notice, almost all of them are based on a king. So everyone in the world at this point, uh, the world is probably actually a bold statement. North America, not so much. But uh, most of the world that they knew, right, was, was having kings. 
Um, even Egypt switched to, kind of from fair to king. It's sort of the same thing, but they, they, like the modernizing language. And that's, how they, that's just how the world was. You had a king. Who was your king? This is like what it looked like. And so the Jewish people are sitting at the table, and they're tired of wearing off-brand Uggs, and they want to wear real Uggs, okay? And they are not secure enough to just own the fact that they don't have Uggs, right? And so they're like, what do we do? This is the, brings us to um, uh, in, uh, Kings, sorry, I lost my place. In, in, or sorry, 1 Samuel 8, this is the passage called Israel Seeks a King. Now, you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read the story really quickly. But this is the moment where they say, we're enough with the judges. We want kings. And it starts with Samuel. It says, in his old age, Samuel appointed his sons as judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba, and they did not follow his ways. Instead, they made money, dishonestly accepted bribes, and perverted justice. We don't have politicians like that nowadays, do we? No, never. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and approached Samuel and Ramon. They said to him, look, you are old. Your sons don't follow your ways, so now appoint over us a king to lead us, just like all the other kids at the lunch table. But this request displeased Samuel, for they said, give us a king to lead us. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, do everything the people request from you. For it is not you they have rejected, but it is me that they have rejected as their king, just as they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt until this very day they have rejected me and served other gods, and this is what they are doing to you. So now do as they say, but seriously warn them and make them aware of the policies of the king who will rule over them. And so Samuel spoke all the words to the Lord to the people who were asking him for the king. <coughs> Excuse me. And he said, uh, point for, uh, this is what the king will do. He will rule over you. He will conscript your sons, put them in his chariot forces and his cavalry. They will run in front of your chariot. You'll appoint for them thousands of leaders as well as those who plow the ground, reap the harvest, and make weapons. He will take your daughters to be ointment makers, cooks, and bakers. He will take your best fields, your vineyards. He will give them to his own servants. He will take male and female servants as well as your best cattle, your donkeys, and assign them for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will be his servants. In that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, God here is giving um, a pretty specific warning, right? And, and being like, hey, here's the reasons why this is a terrible idea. And they don't, um, they don't listen, which, like, come on. When you're a teenager and you're like, hey, mom, dad, I want to do this really bad idea, your parents can do one of two things. They can say no, or they can say, well, you know, you're getting older, but here's the things that you need to weigh and the consequences. And those just, you know, one ear out the other. You're like, yeah, 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 okay, okay, okay. And then you go do it, and you don't even care, right? Same thing. We want to do this. We got our minds fixed on it. We don't like the, the current way things are. God's like, okay, but here's what's going to happen. And they're like, whatever, we don't care. And that's what they say. They say, but the people refused to heed Samuel's warning and said, they said, no, there will be a king over us, and we will be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, and he will lead us and fight our battles. Samuel listened, and God said, do as they say, and install a king over them. <coughs> Sorry, I'm finishing up a cold here. So we have Israel in this moment of the Bible. Uh, one commentator said this was like the most pivotal moment of Israel turning from the kingship of God into the kingship of man. Because before this, when God gave judges, it was still his job. And in fact, what's interesting about this passage at the beginning, it says, in his old age, Samuel appointed his own sons as judges. That is already showing you that they're slipping in trusting the Lord to provide for them and being patient in the Lord appointing judges. Samuel's like, well... I'm just going to put my sons in here, which is never a good idea. And, uh, and they did not do a good job, and people didn't like it. So the tension of kingship in this 
uh, reality for them is super difficult. And so if you boil it down, why did the people want a king? They were not comfortable trusting the Lord. They were not comfortable in the fact that this physical uh, reality of a judge or king was not like everyone else's perception, meaning they had a physical king. They could follow him. It was easy. They could see him. And I mean, we're not that different today. We would, if I ask you, would you rather have Jesus sit at your table and eat dinner with you and talk to you or someone who loves you like Jesus sit at your table and minister to you and love you? You'd be like, I'll take the Jesus 100% of the time, right? So when he, God's like, I'm going to give you this person, they're like, no, nah, we don't want that. Like, we want a king. We want someone we can see, we can sit down with, we can champion and be like, look at our king. Look how great we are. And so God provocatively is like, okay, which is weird to me. I don't know if you're like, that's, why would you, if you're God, why would you let the people do something very stupid? But he does. And this is the, this is the history of the Old Testament, is God uh, letting the Israelite people be human and then working within the mess and uh, in just lamenting and having a grieving heart over his people, continually screwing up, making mistakes, but continually working through their mess into something redemptive. And that's, that's the narrative of kings for the next several hundred years. So, hundred years of years go by, uh, and that brings us to 400 years later and 23 kings later, including a split of the kingdom into two kingdoms with two kings, a big thing. You can read that in the Old Testament. And that brings us to Isaiah 35, which is where I asked you like a million minutes ago to turn in your Bible. Isaiah 35, that's our passage, is what Kylie read a little bit of. And Isaiah 35, um, the location of Isaiah matters. If you read the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are Isaiah prophesying and fulfilling his role as a prophet to the people before what is known as the great exile. There are two exiles, exile Babylon with one kingdom because they split Exile of Assyria, other kingdom. This is written to uh, the people primarily from Babylon. And in, in Isaiah 39, it's 39 and then starting in ch- verse four, uh, 1 of chapter 40, that is where the exile happens. So Isaiah is essentially writing two books, if you will. One is pre-exile, one is in exile. And the prophecies that he has sometimes overlap, but the last, you know, whatever that is, 14 chapters, 23 chapters, whatever that is, is a little more depressing because they got chains on their neck, they're in Babylon, they're being taken away to Babylon, and Isaiah's like, this is not good. But before that, Isaiah is still prophesying what the, the king, the true Messiah that we know to be, who that will look like and what that will be like. And so I, chapter 35 is all about this idea of a desert wasteland being made ripe with harvest. It's really similar to the idea of heaven in Revelation, that there's this city that's just crafted, it's beautiful, it's just the ultimate essence of joy. Um, a lot of times, uh, Isaiah and other prophets will use the, the word Zion, this city. It's like this idea of this perfect city. So if you ever see Zion, that's what it's referring to, almost like a heaven. And he's talking about it. But in 34, the chapter before that, he, he talks about the depravity and the falling of Edom. Edom is essentially this man-created city full of the world's idols and pleasures and how that will eventually cease. It will hit a level of efficiency and productivity at a low level of deep satisfaction, and it will become a wasted, barren land. And then the, chapter 35 is him taking that land and redeeming it. And that's what, that's what we're reading. And that's why there's all this imagery of like water being placed in this desert and, and life being brought up and, and sick and lame being healed and, and all this beauty that we see. But in all of that, we have to navigate this idea of joy. Okay, Jesus is going to become this Messiah Isaiah is talking about. He's going to redeem people in chapter 35. They hadn't been in exile yet, but he's still going to, he's coming later. And he's going to bring up this sense of joy. 
and uh, some would say happiness, right? And what does that actually look like? I grew up in the great state of Pennsylvania, which are our eastern neighbors. Uh, and our motto, currently, if you drive over the highway, usually Interstate 80, it'll say, find your happiness. How fun is that? <laughs> Ohio's, I just found out last year, it used to be find it here, whatever that means. And now it's, um, what is it? The heart of it all, yeah. The heart of it all, cool. It's like, how can we brag about other, like, from other states but not brag too much? And how can we keep it holistic, right? Like, just very broad and ambiguous. Like, Pennsylvania, pursue your happiness. At first, I'm like, this sounds like a Vegas slogan, but Pennsylvania is also great. Pursue your happiness of hunting and fishing and living on hills in the woods. I mean, it sounds like fun, but this brings us to the idea of happiness. What is happiness? We live in a culture where uh, the West specifically, where our happiness is almost always on the backs of someone else's slavery. Whether it's you know, products, clothing, cars, food, it is the sense of efficiency and toil for the sake of our happiness. And it's funny because everybody would say, we want you to pursue your happiness, which means I can't define what's good for you, um, until your happiness starts to hurt other people in groups that I care about. Because pretty much all of our happiness today is, is rooted in, in, in taking advantage of other people in the world, whether we're aware of it or not. Even if we try to switch power to something else, there's still people mining that in a city that is not, you know, like, it just, you can't escape it. We live in a broken world, and to find happiness in light of all that, there's going to be some form of not happiness for other people. And that creates this complexity and, uh, in politics of like, how do we pick people's happiness? How do we create standards for that? How do we, how do we, cha how do we champion that? How do we reign that? How do we police that? All that fun stuff. But here's what I want to poke at. You've probably grown up with this or seen in the church or seen on social media or whatever, wherever you've seen it. There's these, there's these, two, these, these two dichotomies, this dichotomy of the idea of happiness and the idea of joy. And they're, they're different, right? Like, if I had to, if I had to um, you know, give you the synopsis, happiness is typically fleeting, right? It's temporary. It's usually situationally based. So, you know, um, a good example is you're at an amusement park. You know, you're happy because you're riding rides and it's fun and whatever, right? You have a great time. But joy is supposed to be this almost permanency. It's like a state of feeling that is deeper, you know, and, and um, that's not right, but it's okay. Uh, and and it's, it's usually this, would argue in the Christian circle, this is Jesus. Like, this is God. God gives you joy, right? This is like Jesus orchestrated. And, uh, and this is usually carnal, flesh, worldly. Sometimes it has some Jesus in it, you know. But it's typically not. It's, and, and sometimes, you know, we would say, oh, it's sinful. Like, pursuing happiness is, you know, sinful or whatever. Um, but most of the time, it's the world. And then we would say, this is usually shallow, Right? You can feel it in the second. It can be gone the next. Joy is rich and deep, and it typically is you know, this long state of, of feeling. And that's how, we, um, that's how we talk about happiness and joy. Now, I'm just going to ask you. You don't have to answer. It's okay. But uh, where, where do you see this in the Bible? And you might be like, oh, there's like some words of joy. We just sang a song, Everlasting Joy. There's some happiness in there, too. But I think this seems right. Well, well I'm here to break your heart today in the day of joy, that none of this is the way the Bible would read any of this. Uh, and this is, I don't even know how it started. I don't even know why or how or, but this is not, this is not, if you, if I taught this to a bunch of Jew, first century Jews, they would literally be like, what are you talking about? 
because the words for happiness and joy are really all combined. It's this giant mess um, that we have to talk about. Because if I want to talk about joy and happiness, I can't define it by this because this is not right. So there's three words. They're going to be up on the screen, too, if you, if you care. And this is specifically in the New Testament in the Greek. But there's basically three words that you see for these forms of good. Uh, there is the first one, which is kaira, if I'm saying that right. Uh, and that is a noun. It's used 59 times in the New Testament. And it can be anywhere in there. Joy, rejoicing, happiness, gladness, the experience of gladness, the state of joyfulness. See how there's like, oh, gladness, joy, happiness. It's all in there. Uh, the most common verse you maybe would know is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. The fruit of the Spirit is love and kara, happiness, you could say. But most translators don't translate it like that because Americans think happiness is shallow. Joy is deeper, so they use the word joy. But it could be both. If you're a first century Jew uh, or you're even in the Greek culture, it's the same. And then the, the next one is the, basically the verb of this, which is kairo, but it's seen significantly more, 74 times. And that is the, the verb, it's a state of being in happiness, well-being, rejoicing, being glad. Uh, a common way that you would actually see this is in a greeting. So I talked about peace, shalom last week. How you could say, I'm experiencing shalom, but you could also just say shalom, shalom, which is a greeting. It means peace, peace, perfect peace. In the same way that in Philippi, uh, Philippians 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always, and he's just saying greetings, um, happiness. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a formal, you know, sense of greeting. And the last one, which is probably the one that's closest translated to why people get this whole happiness, joy idea, is uh, makaros, and that's an adjective, also can potentially be used as a noun, depending on the conjugation of the word. Uh, and that's used 50 times. And uh, that is, has a, a far more um, messy translation because it often is used in light of blessed. So blessed, as you know, is all over the Bible. And I would say most people, if you ask them, are you blessed or are you happy, is a very different question, but that is not the case today. This is all in this messy web of, of gladness, of rejoicing, of goodness, of delight. And uh, if you think about Macros, uh, what's, what's really provocative is if you read the, the Sermon on the Mount, which we've studied, blessed are, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. That word is ma Macarios. It could really be, in fact, some translations will say, happy are the meek. Happy are the poor in spirit. If you read that, you would feel, man, that's way less reverent than blessed. But that, that's the spirit of the word. And so the reason why I'm, it seems like I'm being the semantics and nerdy is because it matters because far many of us as Christians have felt guilt when we experience happiness because we feel like it's just purely carnal and doesn't have any spiritual life in it. And a lot of us then feel even more guilty when we're depressed and we aren't experiencing this deep sense of joy that everyone else should always be experiencing when they follow Jesus. And so I'm here to free you from that, and I'm also here to open up what is a bit of a mess in all of this. And so what I want to do is I want to try to show you, uh, in my own way, a better way of looking at this that I think honors the biblical narrative, and that I think if I had first century Jews in here, they wouldn't be throwing stuff at me right now. And this is not a new thought. I'm not, like, inventing something. Charles Spurgeon, one of the most grumpy theologian pastors of all time, is famous for the quote that says, God made human beings to be happy. Now, if we just put that on, online, people would be like, no, that your happiness is not your priority. Like, you know, Pennsylvania's wrong. Like, right? It's, it's, it's no, you're not, your point is not to be happy. Your point is to, you know, have purpose and, to, and glorify God and whatever. No, I actually think you could argue that God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be blessed. Now, the implications of that and the value systems are very important, but Charles Spurgeon said, God made human beings to be happy. And he said, my dear brothers, if anyone in the world ought to be happy, we are those people. 
How boundless our privileges, how brilliant our hopes. Amy Carmichael, who would be the epitome of sadness, was a missionary to India who worked with exploited girls in horrendous situations, rescued over 1,000 of them in the name of Jesus, spent 20 years of her life, final 20 years, mostly bedridden, says there is nothing dreary or doubtful about this Christian life. It is meant to be continually joyful. We are called then to what? A settled happiness in the Lord whose joy is our strength. And so that's what I want to poke out today. Rather than thinking about this like everlasting joy, which is not a bad thing. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just what does it actually mean? I think for us, defining it as a settled happiness is a really good place to start. And so she even says, yeah, embodying this settled happiness. So that means that how can I experience uh, the goodness, the blessing, the rejoicing of the Lord in light of all things while still in, you know, engaging in hardship and suffering and difficulty. Because we have to know that the world that we're in is not the world that God wants. And because of that, we experience the goodness of God in a world full of chaos and destruction and malevolence. And that's the reality of what we just are now. Heaven is the idea of that, not being there and able to live this life of full happiness and blessing and joy. And that's what Jesus inaugurates in his kingdom in Matthew 5. So what I want to flesh out here practically is let's just start at the, 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 the greatest sense of happiness, joy, delight. It is God himself. And God himself is able to do that on his own. The idea of the Trinity, that they all are honoring and loving and in community with one another. It's this weird idea that I don't have time to talk about. But in that, you have Jesus, who is God, but then becomes man. And we see the prototype of humanity through his lifestyle, through his teachings, and through his happiness and his joy. I think Jesus smiled sometimes. I think Jesus ate a good meal. I think Jesus was at weddings, which were fun and happy, and you had to be happy, right? Jesus embodies that. But what else Jesus does, more than just himself being uh, joy, which like we could say happiness, joy, embodying that through this, is he also was, you know, he brought a life of peace. He brought a life of, like, hope. Does this sound familiar? Advent. But he also did practical things. So he embodied virtues and things that we would see as the essence of God, but he also did things that brought about happiness and joy. Uh, you know, you could argue that prayer, fasting, solitude, why was he doing all that? It was to have this relationship of blessing and goodness and rejoicing with the Father. And so you could say prayers in there. I know some of you are like, I don't know about that. Prayer is not an essence of happiness. But, you know, what is, what is Sabbath, right? Sabbath is a day of stopping, savoring, slowing, and delighting. And even God did this at the beginning. He's showing you from Genesis 1 and 2, this is how you are delighted. You are blessed. You are happy. This is the way of God that I am promoting in my image bearers. This is how you do it. That's an example, right? Concrete example. Uh, another one I would argue is that generosity. We experience the heart of God through generosity. Jesus was an extremely generous guy. He gave up literally his entire body for us. Now, there's a bunch more I can add, whatever. The whiteboard's small. That's okay. But let's just, let's just flesh this out. Let's say that generosity leads to wealth. Can Christians be wealthy? And you have a fun time talking about that with people, I bet. Can Christians be wealthy? Then, let's boil it down even more. Can Christians have a new nice car? Right? Can Christians take the job raise? Should they take the job raise? Should Christians save money? You know, whatever. Flesh it out, right? And what I want to, what the tension that we find ourselves in, this is the newest kind of way of thinking, is there, there comes a point in this process where this is all happiness. I could boil this the whole way down to the bottom of the page and I could say, you know what? My first bite at Chipotle, every time, pure happiness. I'm just pumped. I'm so happy. It's great. But would I equate that to the love of God? No, I wouldn't. But it's still good, and, I, and it's still from God. God created food. God created taste on your tongue to enjoy flavors. 
That's good. That's worship. Now, if you're agnostic or atheist and you take a bite of Chipotle and you say, I'm happy, you are. You can be happy, too. <laughs> we can both be happy. We, just have, we have different ascribing worths to it. We have a different chain of how happy and what, what, where it comes from. But we can still both be objectively happy, which is why Christians feel bad because they get a new car and they're like, well, you know, I mean, I, I should be suffering, but I, I have a vice, and it's a car that's reliable, you know? And uh, so I bought this new car, and, well, you know, it was the least, you know, you, like, justify it, right? Uh, and this is not prosperity gospel. This is just life. Like, we have to make decisions, and you can find some, in someone's life, anyone's life, something that they're doing that you could make them feel guilty about, right? Let's just be honest. Oh, you have that really nice thing. Wow. You have that really nice purse. Ooh. Oh, you want a vacation where? Like, come on. It's just, you know, it's just dumb. But so this is, this is the world we live in. Now, this is where the rubber hits the road. There is a point where I'm going to call this the worldly line, and I'm going to make it an area because it's more of a gray area. I'm trying to be nuanced here, not so black and white. But it's an air, a gray area because we'll argue about what is and what isn't, right? Okay, fine. But this is the world line, and this is the level at which happiness, if this is a spectrum here, this is the level that you get stuck. And this is, this is the world. The world is running at this ceiling, and then they spiral, and they try to do something like, oh, I need money, and then if I money, oh, I'll be happy. Okay, that's not making me happy. Then I, okay, I'm going to use it to be impressive. And then, oh, I'm not impressive. And then, you know, it just, it's just a constant hitting of a ceiling. And this is why Charles Spurgeon says the happiest people are Christians, because we get to surpass this, not in more of this, but in a deeper understanding and value system of happiness, that we can have money and have a far greater, deeper, more kingdom-minded and enriching purpose because we're generous. And as we do that, we experience the heart and the gospel of generosity. And as we experience that, we abide in Jesus in relationship with him. And that is the greatest, deepest level of happiness. However, most of the world is not getting there. And so the responses of the way that we live and we are subject to, just like the Israelites, is like, we want a king, you know, down here. And it's going to be great. And God's like, well, all the problems you're going to have are going to be in this area. He's going to take all your money. He's going to take your job. He's going to do you know, all this stuff. And it's just this whole worldly game. It's just crap. It's a waste of time. And the world is worried about this. But for us, we have this deeper sense of joy and of happiness. And this allows us to experience, if you would say, joy in the midst of hardship, happiness when life is tough. But you're still allowed to feel sad. You're still allowed to mourn. You're still allowed to feel uh, a sense of just, man, I am bummed. And that's, you know, if this, the board was longer and this was bad stuff like loss and cancer. I don't even know. You can name a bunch of things, right? And this is negative, right? Uh, we all still, like, if you're a Christian, you're still going to have that. You're not getting out of that, right? If that was the case, everybody would be Christian. But what do we do then? Well, the Bible tells us more to engage with this than this. So, so if you're sad, don't feel guilty. You're human. You're actually honoring God in grieving and in mourning, right? Back then, you had to pay people to grieve and mourn for you, so just in case you, didn't, you weren't feeling it, you know? It's a big deal. Imagine that nowadays on Craigslist. But, so, but, but what, I'm, what I'm getting at is the world is living half. They're just, they're, the world will never be enough. The happiness of the world will never be enough. The beauty of it is that these things are good if they're value and ascribed in worship to worth of God who gave them to us. They are not objectively bad, but what they can do and how they can stifle us can be. If all you're concerned about is money for the sake of yourself or pride or status or security, and it removes you from this connection, then it, it's trash. It's meaningless. It's just as void as, it's just as purposeful as anything else, the raise. Now, maybe the raise, though, could be good, but maybe the raise means you work more and you don't Sabbath, 
and you don't pray and you lose peace, right, then is it really worth it? Momentary happiness creates long-term stress. The biggest one that I'll add and then I'll move on that I think is just super timely is this whole concept of mindfulness. Can we just talk about mindfulness for a second? Mindfulness is leadership guru's ways of selling more books. All mindfulness is is prayer without God. And what it does is it is our brains are neurologically created for basically that act in itself. Slowing down, not having your brain be stressed all the time. Meditating, right? These things that everyone's like, this is this new idea that people haven't been doing for hundreds of years. And this one is, in, and I'd say the day off, right? They're writing all these new books about how you should be like, you need to grind, work every day. And now these leadership gurus are like, you should take a day off. Wow, who knew that? Like, that blows my mind. Like, God's like, really? You're going to reinvent that one? But, but those ones start to get into this, right? They start, you, you get to start experiencing some of the good of these things that God has created, and then, then it becomes this line, right? And that's where, like, prayer and mindfulness, it's, people are starting to love it. They love yoga. They love mindfulness. Why do they love it? Because they're getting small tastes of a deeper sense of happiness and joy. And it will still not reach enough, but they can act like it can, or they can, you know. So this is the lens at which we see, and then if we translate this into the Jewish people, it's not that different, they just didn't have the screwed up terms that maybe we did. But this brings us then to what, what you know, where are we at here? Like, what, what, is it, what do we do with this? How do we, how do we live in light of this? What does settled happiness look like? And this is where it brings us to the kingship of Jesus, and this is how I'm going to close. So Isaiah 35, which we read, um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it quick. It's a poem, so it's quick and easy to read because the lines are short. Uh, Let desert and dry region be happy. More joyful. Let the wilderness rejoice and bloom like a lily. Let it rich bloom. Let it rejoice and shout with delight. All these good things. Then he names cities that are known for good. They will see the grandeur of the Lord, the splendor of God, strength in the hands of those who have gone limp and steady the knees. And tell those who panic, be strong, do not fear. The Lord your comes to avenge with divine retribution. He will deliver you. And then all these things that the healings, the blind eyes will open, the deaf ears will hear, the lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongue will shout for joy. Keep an eye on that one. The mute tongue will shout for joy. The water will flow from the desert, right? Water everywhere. Dry ground is good. The way of happiness is coming. And then at the end it says, unending joy will crown them. They will enter Zion with a happy shout. Happiness and joy will overwhelm them, and grief and suffering will disappear. You know, and I know, that grief and suffering has yet to disappear because Isaiah is prophesying not only events but a a future of the kingdom, of the heaven of God. So he's saying these things that you're experiencing, and this is before exile. This is like just them creating this Las Vegas of a city and thinking they're great, and then being like, that's just aimless, and you're going to get something much greater, and this will eventually disappear, because he's prophesying not only in a little bit in the future, and with Jesus, but he's also prophesying end, end of where we're going. And he says this beautiful poem. Now, the poem's great, Isaiah 35, that's awesome, right? However, there's a lot of this, he uses the exact same language in Isaiah 51 and 52, and we know 51 and 52 is past the exile. These Babylonians are taking control of the Israelites. They're in exile, and they're struggling. And, and this is when Isaiah gets really clear about this Messiah, the sent one, the king. And this is what Isaiah says about this king. And you can just, on your mind, think about what king, every king before them and what they embodied and who they were about. And then I want you to think about this definition of a king. It says in chapter 52, verse 13, look, my servant will succeed. He will be elevated. That's the idea of kingship. Lifted high and greatly exalted. Oh, okay, cool. Just as many were horrified by the sight of you. Oh, okay. He was so disfigured, he no longer looked like a man. His form was so marred, he no longer looked human. So now he will startle many nations. Okay. Kings will be shocked by his exaltation. 
See the, the contrast there? For they will witness something unannounced to them. They will understand something they had not heard about. Who would have believed what we just heard? When was the Lord's power revealed through him? He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of parched soil. He had no stately form or majesty that might catch out of attention, almost like he was born in this weird little shack in a manger, right? No special appearance. Did anyone want to follow him? Not like Saul, right? Good-looking guy Saul, who was a terrible king. He was despised and rejected by people. One who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised, and we considered him insignificant, but... He lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain. And even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God, and afflicted for something he had done, he was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins, and he endured punishment that made us well. Because of his wounds, we have been healed. All of us had wandered off like sheep. Each of us had strayed at our own path. But the Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. He was treated harshly, and he was afflicted. But he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to a slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before her shears was not opening his mouth. He was led away after an unjust trial, but who even cared? Indeed, he was cut off from the land of living because of the rebellion of his people that he was wounded. They intended him then, this is even more prophetic, to bury him with criminals, but he ended up in a rich man's tomb. Because he had committed no violent deeds, nor he spoken deceitfully, though the Lord desired to crush him and make him ill, once restitution is made, he will see descendants and enjoy long life, and the Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him. Having suffered, he will reflect on his work. He will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. My servant will acquit many, for he carried their sins. Now, Isaiah is, you can tell, he is prophesying about something much greater than just not being subjugated to Babylon. Or in the first century, not being subjugated to Rome, right? It's something much greater and much deeper. And if this is a resume for a king, we should redefine what a king is. And this is why God works through a king. You say, well, he didn't want a king. Why would he work through a king now? Because this king is not a king. I think you can't even call this a king. You've got to call it like a servant king because it's nothing like any king they had known. Every king they had known lorded over their power, took advantage of people, set up things. It was nepotistic. They took people's land. They took the best of the fields. They played politics. They played games. They manipulated, right? They built statues in their honor. They did all these things. The three things all the kings did. Lots of women, lots of tanks or chariots, lots of money, right? Is it that different today? And... And they did all these things, and then this is the definition of the, the servant king, of the king of Jesus who comes, and he's ugly, and no one recognizes him, and no one cares, and he doesn't open his mouth, and he's beaten, and he's brutal for our sins. And that's the king of joy. Because when that's your king, it's almost impossible to not experience joy, because that is just the most beautiful gift that you can receive, one that gives you a sense of happiness and a sense of joy that will never be close to the things of this world. And so though he experiences this hardship, and you're like, man, that is rough. The result is pure joy. I want to close with this, and we'll invite up um, Nadia here as we wrap up. The next chapter in verse 1 of chapter 54, the title is Zion will be secured. Zion, as I said, is this metaphor for heaven, for the people of heaven. And this is their response to that, right, where it's like this guy just got destroyed for other people. What do they do? They shout for joy. If you're barren and not given birth, give a joyful shout and cry out. You have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one are more numerous than the children of a married woman, says the Lord. And this is what he tells me to do, which is not is so irrelevant to today, but it's so prophetic. He says, make your tent larger. Stretch your tent curtains farther out. Spare no effort. Lengthen your ropes and pound your stakes deep. Now, 
if you want to talk about you know making your tent larger, what that means is like you just gotta, you just gotta. This this is humility and trust and faith here. Your tent is too small, and you've not been trusting in the faithfulness of God and the joy that He can provide for you through His Son. And you are trying to satisfy something at which your soul will only be at rest here. And 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 you're just you need to to realize that we need to set our bounds bigger. We need to move our tent. We need to trust. And this isn't, like I said, this isn't like prosperity, like, yeah, just make your floor pan bigger. God will build your big house. You know, it's not that simple. But what it is saying is you can, you can be trusting and that what Jesus will actually give you is not, uh, is not like more slavery. It is not more hardship. It is not necessarily more um, uh, oppression. It is freedom. Now, the, the look of that can feel different in the world, but what Jesus gives us is truly and ultimately the deepest level of happiness. And so as, as we wrap up, I want to give us this idea because Jesus communicates this idea. In, in John 15, one of my favorite passages is about the vine and abiding in the vine or remaining. It's this idea of daily and constant contact and relationship. And he says at the end of that, he's in verse 11 or 12, he says, he basically says, continue doing these things, obeying my commands, being in, in abiding with me, and my joy will be complete, and your joy will be complete from me, is basically what he's saying. And the word complete in the Greek is actually more accurately uh, translated as fulfilled. Fulfilled, meaning that, that all we need can be completed from Jesus' joy. What is Jesus' joy? Jesus' joy is, is, is God. It is the glory of God. It is humanity becoming Zion, what God wanted all along, right? It is this flourishing and this beauty without all the bad, without all the sin and the perversion and the distancing from God. And his joy, we are able to take and we are able to receive and we are able to be fulfilled to the fullest. Fulfilled. And it is finished. And so the people with chains around their necks going to Babylon are, are being told these words and they're like, okay. <laughs> but we've experienced that. And there's more to come, I promise. But we've experienced it to the level that you have access to this today. It is not like we're in Babylon and we're worried about what they're going to do with us, but we have the ability to experience pure joy through the person of Jesus in his way, in his life, in his sacrifice as the ultimate servant king. So as we move into a time of formation, and I have some reflection questions, these just give you some space to process. The first one is how your understanding of joy and happiness, being packaged all in one, shifted your thinking on your desires and your overall pursuit of happiness. The second one is, uh, what area in your life is currently creating happiness but lacking the depth of Jesus within it? And if you identify that, what would it look like to shift, refocus, or surrender that to Jesus? And number three, if you've never experienced the gravity of a settled happiness in Jesus, what is holding you back? So we'll give you some time for that. And as always, we have the formation time. There's three other things you can do as well. Uh, there's bread and cup on the front and back, gluten-free, grape juice as a reminder of the king who was brought outside the land of living, brought outside the temple and Jerusalem and scoffed and hated and killed as a king on a cross. So we take that as a reminder of the sacrifice he made for us. There's also a box in the back we call the bringing box. You can bring back a portion of what God has given you through tithes, offerings. Uh, and then lastly, there's people in the back who would love to just pray for you. In any space you find yourself in, people would love to pray for you. Maybe you're just praising God because you just realize, man, God has been so good to me even in all of this. And you just like to share that and bring that before the Lord. So we're going to give you some space, and then we're going to close in two more songs. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.